Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Dr. Vivek Murthy. I served as the Surgeon General under President Obama, and I'm also the author of the book Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. And I'll be your moderator today for today. Uh, as the club continues to host virtual events, given the pandemic that we're in, they're very grateful for the continued support of their members and donors. And we hope that you will all consider making a donation online or text donate to 415-329-4231. That's 415-329-4231. The club would also like to thank the Ken and Jackie Broad Family Fund for supporting today's program. And it is my pleasure today to introduce uh, a friend and someone I deeply admire, Dr. Nicholas Christakis, the author of Apollo's Arrow, The Profound Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. And I could, cannot think of a more timely book uh, than this one. A little bit about Nicholas. He is a physician, a sociologist, and a public health expert. He directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale University, which, by the way, I think is the coolest name uh, for a lab, the Human Nature Lab. Uh, and at Yale, he is the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science, Internal Medicine, and Biomedical Engineering. He's also the co-director of the Yale Institute for Network Science. Now, his book, Apollo's Arrow, offers a riveting account of the impact of the coronavirus pandemic and how the recovery will unfold in the coming years. And just as a reminder, we'll be taking your questions, so please submit those in the chat box on your Zoom window, and we'll be going through those and picking some out at the end to respond to. So with that, Nicholas, let me welcome you and first say congratulations on this book. I know how hard you've worked on it. I'm so excited it's here and excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Vivek. I'm looking forward to speaking to you too and to everyone that's listening whose faces I can't see. Well, Nicholas, let me first start off by asking you, how are you? Like, how are you doing during this pandemic, which has affected all of us uh, in uh, unexpected ways? I mean, we are fine. Uh, Thanks, goodness. Uh, my family and I, we have three grown children and one 10-year-old uh, that Erica and I just adopted. Uh, so we have a f- four kids, one young kid. We're, we live in Vermont, which has a low prevalence of the infection. And I've basically been at home since March because, of course, I can do my job from home and run my lab, which is mostly a dry lab, but also there's a small wet lab, but just a few people are going there. But, you know, of course, you know, we have over 30 million Americans out of work, and we have 230,000 known deaths, probably 300,000 closer, uh, you know, uh, excess deaths due to the condition. And um, there's a lot of public health or clinical and economic and even social suffering uh, in our country right now. You know, the, the loss of togetherness that you described, you know, in your own work, uh, people are lonely, they're far apart, they're missing their friends. And so... You know, I, I can report that so far, you know, we're, we're okay. I mean, I miss dinner parties with my friends. I, uh, I, I wish I could be in present right now, you know, in San Francisco myself and sit next to you and have a conversation. And, but those are small prices to pay, all things considered. Mm. Well, I wish we could have been together as well. But oh. I'm thankfully, if this uh, pandemic had been happening 30 years ago, we wouldn't have even had the technology to be together. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful That's for right. that. Nicholas, I want to recognize that a lot of people who are tuning in today may have varying levels uh, of familiarity uh, with the the details of coronavirus, who it affects, how dangerous or deadly it is, um, and how it's actually impacting us right now. Like, where are we in this pandemic? And I was hoping you could talk about that, not only because it's generally confusing, because we're learning more and more every day, so things are changing, but also there's been a lot of misinformation out there about COVID-19. So tell us a little bit uh, about this pandemic, and, and we'd love to hear in particular, again, who it affects, how deadly is this, and, and where are we uh, in the pandemic? Yeah, a little Epi 101. I think that's important. You know, when, when the pandemic first began back in, uh, in December, uh, and then as it sort of came to public awareness in January and February, we didn't know much about the pathogen. But now, as you say, we're 10 months in. Scientists and public health experts have been working for months. We, we know a lot, actually, now about this, this germ, this virus. So, you know, something uh, very unusual in the life of our species has happened. 
we, all of us, happen to be alive at the moment when a new pathogen has been introduced into our species and has gone global, has spread. And this pathogen is now going to be a part of our lives forever. This virus is not going to go away. It's going to circulate in our species, as far as we can tell, indefinitely. And the germ, you know, we had no natural immunity, no prior exposure to this virus. The virus is having uh, what is known in ecology as an ecological release. It's like, it's like when, um, when the settlers, the humans, first arrived in New Zealand a thousand years ago, or the, or the uh, European settlers, you know, three or four hundred years ago, three hundred years ago, when they arrived, they brought rats with them, and the rats just took over the island. They, you know, they was, they was on, you know, virgin territory, and they had an ecological release. And this is what the virus is doing to us. The virus is just having a field day with us because it's doing what any other living thing would do. We could debate whether viruses are living or not, but for the purposes of this conversation, the virus is a living thing and it's just doing what all living things do. Well, what, does, what are the intrinsic properties of the virus? Well, first of all, we now know that the virus has what is known as an infection fatality rate uh, of about 0.5 to 0.8%. That means of the people that get infected, on average, between uh, 0.5 and 0.8% of them will die. Now, that's actually quite a serious. That's about 10 times deadlier than the flu. Um, it's not as deadly as smallpox, you know, or cholera or other bubonic plague, you know, or Ebola. But it's not a trivial virus either. The so-called case fatality rate is about twice that. The case fatality rate is of the people who develop symptoms or come to medical attention, what fraction will die. So you would double 0.5 to 0.8. You'd get a number of about 1 to 1.6% of those. Uh, would die. We know the, the other figures I just mentioned from a, a meta-analysis that was just done, a comprehensive study of all the data that's available to try to refine and assess that, that number. So, and the case fatality rate is a bit more contentious because there's variation in who, is there medical care available? Do people show up? So we, we, use, we like to use the infection fatality rate if we can to try to really get a sense of the virus. So it's reasonably deadly. Most people by now have heard that the virus, however, the deadliness of the virus varies tremendously by age. Uh, so, for example, if you're under 20, you probably have a 1 in 3,000 or 1 in, one in 3,000 to 1 in 5,000 chance of dying if you get it. If you're older than, than 80, you have a 1 in 5 chance of dying if you develop symptoms and you're hospitalized. So it can be very deadly if you're elderly, not so deadly if you're young. Although, just so people aren't confused, death is not really a problem of the young anyway. All these young people who are saying, well, if I get it, it's not so bad. It's true, but actually you're unlikely to die of any cause. So taking on the risk of death from the virus is not a trivial thing to do if you're a 20-year-old. I don't think you should be so cavalier as to think, oh, well, who cares? Because actually this is, it could be a serious risk for you. And the second major parameter that epidemiologists like to think about, in addition to how lethal is the germ, is how contagious is the germ? How infectious is it? And this is, many people have heard of the so-called r not. If you saw the movie Contagion, Kate Winslet is trying to explain that, you know, in Minnesota, uh, in, a very, in a scene that is now, in retrospect, very, you know, very apt. And that is in a, in a non-immune population of people. So it's, a, it's a, like we were saying, the virus, no one's ever seen it before, interacting normally. How many new cases does each case create? So a very contagious germ like measles each case of measles will create 18 new cases of measles. A not-so-contagious germ like seasonal flu, each case of the flu will create 1.5 new cases, approximately. And this germ creates about three new cases, between 2.5 and 3.5. Somewhere between 2.5 and 3, probably, is the R-naught of this germ. So that's reasonably contagious. And if you take these two quantities, and then I'll shut up, if you take these two quantities and plot them, so on, let's say on the x-axis you put how deadly is the germ, and on the y-axis you put how contagious is the germ, and you plot all the respiratory pandemics we've had in the last 100 years, going all the way back to 1918, the, the most deadly one we've had in, you know, in the last 300 years of, of respiratory pandemics, 1918 would be up in the right, very deadly and very contagious, and the coronavirus epidemic of 2019 would be the second most bad one. 1957 influenza pandemic is the previous record holder for the second worst one. And now COVID-19 has, has eclipsed. So every 50 to 100 years, we have a, every 10 to 20 years, we have a respiratory pandemic. Tony Fauci was writing about this when you and I were in elementary school. Uh, 
and uh, but every 50 or 100 years, we have a, a major one. And that we, we happen to be alive at a moment when that is happening. It's very helpful and really striking that um, where this virus has ascended to in that rank order list of um, sort of most concerning and impactful viruses. Um, I want to actually talk about something that's been in the news a lot uh, lately regarding this virus, which is the vaccine. And the reason I want you to comment on the vaccine is you write about it beautifully in your book and some of the articles that you've uh, written since um, you finished a manuscript. But there's this notion out there, Nicholas, that if we're able to get a safe and effective vaccine, then this is going to be over, uh, this pandemic. Uh, We're done. And, you know, what you've done beautifully in the book is you've talked about um, phases of this pandemic, uh, that there's an immediate phase and an intermediate period, a post-pandemic period. And what I'd love for you to do is to talk to us a little bit about, number one, how do we think about this vaccine in terms of what it's actually going to do for us, what, and also what are the limitations of this vaccine? And how does that fit in the vaccine to the, the phases of the pandemic as you've described them? Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad to do that. Let me set the stage by one digression then before we come back to that key thing, which is we have to talk for a moment about herd immunity, uh, which I know is also on everyone's mind. So herd immunity is an, is an old idea in epidemiology that is the notion that a group of people can be relatively protected or immune from a condition, even if not every individual within the population is immune. And the intuition is that if you have, let's say, a moderately infectious germ um, that spreads from person to person to some extent, if, um, if let's say, half the population in, in, is already immune because they've been vaccinated or because they've gotten the disease and then acquired natural immunity, if by dumb luck someone is infected in that population, then they're very unlikely to run into anyone to whom they can spread it. Uh, you know, let's say, for instance, um, uh, in the case of measles, if you have 95% of the people vaccinated, even if one of the five unvac- 5% unvaccinated people got measles, they're very unlikely to run into someone who hasn't been vaccinated. And as a result, that person gets measles, but you don't get an outbreak. So you don't have to vaccinate every single person in a population. That's the notion of herd immunity. And prior to the invention of vaccines, this was the ultimate fate of all pathogens, right? I mean, they, they would spread and spread and spread in a population. And, uh, and either they would annihilate the population, like smallpox epidemics in Native American populations, for example. But most of the time, it wasn't so bad. They didn't annihilate the population. They'd spread until a certain fraction of the people were immune. And then you had the disease became what is known as endemic. It just sort of percolated along. The germ didn't disappear, but you didn't have these like outbreaks anymore. That's the notion of herd immunity. And there's this mathematical relationship between how contagious the disease is and the fraction of people that must be immune, either by vaccination or by natural immunity, before you get herd immunity. So the more infectious a germ is, like measles, 95% 95% or 94 to 96% of the population has to be immunized to stop measles outbreaks. But for the flu, which as, as I said earlier, is not so infectious. Remember I said the r naught of the flu is like 1.5. You can get away with infecting 20 or 30% of the population and still tamp down on a flu epidemic. Well, our best estimate, in my, my judgment, our best estimate f- given certain network science ideas, which we can come back to if you want, is probably 45% of Americans need to have the experience the infection before we get herd immunity, 45%, not 60 to 70%. So we right now, our national exposure is probably at 10 or 11%. So we are just still at the beginning of this epidemic. We've got a long way to go. So, but the, the germ is still, the virus is still spreading and we'll get there. Probably in by 2022, if we did nothing, we would get to herd immunity. Well, what happens if we invent a vaccine? Well, if we invent a vaccine, probably sometime in the first quarter of in, in, in 2021, even if we invent a vaccine, which will have unclear safety and efficacy, we still have to manufacture, distribute, which is not trivial, of course, as you know, the cold chain, you know, the vaccine from the time of manufacture to the time of injection has to be refrigerated in refrigerator truck, trucks, every pharmacy has to have refrigerators, it all has to be exactly right. And people have to accept the vaccine, have to take it. So we've got to manufacture millions of doses, distribute millions of doses, and people have to take millions of doses. Well, that's going to take time. So my feeling is that one way or the other, the acute period is going to last till 2022, the immediate epidemic period. Either 
and so by 2022, either we will have invented and distributed a vaccine or the virus will have just reached the level of herd immunity. So that's the first period. And until then, I think we're going to be wearing masks and there'll be intermittent school closures and we'll, we'll have bans on gatherings and restaurants will be closed and airports will be empty and the economy will be adversely affected. I just think that's what's going to happen until then. And then when we have the biological or epidemiological impact behind us, if you look at the history of epidemic disease, people don't immediately just bounce back. We'll have the psychological and uh, social and economic um, recovery that's needed. So the economy will have been adversely affected. People are not suddenly going to go start shaking hands again. They're not going to throw their masks off. They're not going to go to airports and fly. Uh, people are going to be, uh, you know, gun shy. And I think that'll last till 2024, plus or minus, something like that, the intermediate period. And then I think in 2024, we're finally going to see the other side of this. Uh, and it'll be like the roaring 20s after the 1918 epidemic. I think, you know, during the time of pandemic, typically what happens is religion, religiosity goes up, abstemiousness increases, spending, uh, people save their money. But I think in 2024, there's going to be this pent up desire for social interaction. I think we're going to have nightclubs and restaurants and political gatherings and, and, uh, and uh, licentiousness, you know, and joie de vivre and intemperance and risk-taking. And uh, one of my friends said, and here's hoping, you know, that's what happens. But, you know, but I think, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, that's what I, that, so those are the phases as I see them, the immediate period, the intermediate period, and the post-pandemic period. That's very helpful. Yeah, because I do think, I, I think sometimes if you watch the news, the sense you get is, um, you know, we've got a few months more left of this, and then uh, we can get back to our lives sometime in 2021. But I think as you laid out, this is a, this is going to be a longer process, it's going to take place in stages. And there are a couple of things actually that you raised just now that I, I want to actually ask you about, you talked about natural immunity, and you talked about vaccine induced immunity. One thing that's, I think, on some people's minds is a question of how long that's going to last, mm. right? And we, every now and then we see studies coming out just this week, this happened, uh, where we see uh, a population studied and people say, oh, it looks like they dropped their antibody counts after, after three, uh, three months. And so then uh, the headline is uh, immunity only lasts three months. And, we, and you know better than anyone, it's more complicated than that. But, but help us understand a little bit about how to think about how long immunity might last. Well, I mean, you know all about this too, of course, uh, but um, the, uh, the body has different ways, the, the human immune system is very complex and has different ways of combating infections and invaders. One way involves the antibodies where we produce antibodies. There are these circulating proteins that kill invaders. And once you're exposed to a, an infectious pathogen, you produce these antibodies, you fight off the infection, but it would be inefficient for your body to continue to produce these antibodies forever. And in fact, at, for most pathogens, that level declines. And we know from previous studies of coronaviruses and other viruses, it's completely expected that the antibody levels would decline over the period of about a year. There's nothing surprising about the waning of detectable antibodies in people's bodies. But we have another branch of our immune system, so-called cellular immunity or memory immunity, which is that your body is not stupid. It remembers, it has a kind of memory and is able, if re-exposed to the virus, to quickly ramp up and start producing the useful optimal antibodies to kill uh, the pathogen. We, the answer to your question is we can't know for sure how effective or long lasting that memory immunity is, unfortunately, unless we just wait for the passage of time and do the necessary studies. We have every reason to believe, however, that there will be, there will be cellular immunity, there will be memory immunity. We, we don't know how long it'll last and how effective it will be but there's no doubt there will be some of it. We know from previous coronaviruses that often the cellular immunity is very long lasting. Uh, and there was one famous study done in 1990 with uh, people who, with a, there are seven coronaviruses that afflict humans. Four of them cause a common cold and uh, three of them cause serious illnesses have been previous pandemics or, or widespread epidemics. One was the 2003 SARS uh, pandemic, which petered out for various interesting reasons. Only about 8,000 people got it worldwide, but it killed about 10% 10 of them died. There's the 2012 MERS uh, epidemic, which is the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is much deadlier. About 30% of the people who get that disease die. And only about 2,500, I think, cases of those have existed. We know from studying those people, uh, I'm sorry, so, so using one of the cold virus coronaviruses, 
A famous study was done in 1990 when, when people were who had not previously been exposed to this virus were deliberately exposed, and then their antibodies in their blood was measured every couple of months for a year, and the scientists watched the antibody levels go down, and then they brought those people back into the lab and then re-exposed them to the virus to see what happened. And, uh, and most of them had no symptoms at all because they quickly mounted immune response, and those that did have symptoms had much milder symptoms than before. So I think that's what's likely to happen in this condition. And I think people should stop getting alarmed. And we, we have heard of a few cases of reinfection, a handful now that have been documented with genetic tests. But the only reason we hear about those cases is that those people have gotten sick. For many, many people who were re-exposed and did not get sick, which is probably the vast majority, they don't come to medical attention. No one is genotyping their virus. So we don't hear about them. So I don't think... It's impossible to know for sure, but I, I suspect that we're going to have significant immunity uh, from this from exposure to this pathogen. Mm. That's good, and that's reassuring to hear. Um, and I hope that everyone who's listening just remembers that next time you see a headline uh, that says, you know, immunity doesn't last long, that it's a much more complicated story than that, as Nicholas uh, laid out. Um, Nicholas, you know, some of you... But, you re- oh, go ahead, please. Nothing. I was just going to say, you know, I think that... Um, before you got onto the issue of immunity, you know, we were talking about the three phases of this pandemic. I think, I think one of the things I'd, I'd like to highlight is, and in a way, you, you segued into it just now, so I'll connect these dots, is that I think it's very important for people to realize that we are, we are not at the beginning of the end of this pandemic. We're just at the end of the beginning. Hmm. It, it, we're just starting in a way. Uh, which is, and, and I think what this is going to call on the American people, actually, it's going to call on our species, is uh, a sense of maturity and indeed sacrifice is required. I mean, we have to cope as a nation with an invader, and no amount of wishful thinking is going to make this go away. I understand. In fact, for thousands of years, denial and lies have been handmaidens to epidemics. Germs spread, and right behind the spreading germ is the spread of lies. This is typical of epidemics, and it's typical, unfortunately, of our society. And so what it, what's required, and I know you know this is because of your, when you were Surgeon General, some of the work that you did, public health, you know, good public health communication is crucial. So getting people to have confidence in their leaders, being able to galvanize the public, being able to um, collect people together, to get them to work together, to, to shoulder the shared sacrifice, and to accept the unfortunate reality is crucial. And, you know, we, we haven't had enough of that, in my, in my view, in the, as a nation. And I think we, it's not just our leaders that need to do better, but I think uh, we need to just be more mature in our acceptance of, you know, of, of, of the world as it is right now. It, it's, it's not our fault. It's, it's sad. But the coronavirus leapt to our species, and there's nothing we can do about it. You know, we just have to, we have to deal with it. You're right. You know, we didn't choose this um, this pandemic, so to speak. Uh, you know, although I think one thing we are seeing in the world is that various countries have responded very differently uh, to this pandemic. And, and I was curious, given the uh, the wonderful and expansive you know look that you've taken at at this virus, as you look around the world, can you tell us a little bit about how we've done as a country, as the United States, and and when we look at other countries, particularly ones that have been held up as success stories like New Zealand or South Korea, how should we think about what makes a difference between a country that's successful at responding to this pandemic and one that's not? And to what extent is this a result of policy or execution or even culture? Hmm. I mean, I think honestly, we've done embarrassingly bad. You know, we are the richest nation on earth. We have extraordinary scientists. We have the Centers for Disease Control. We have Tony Fauci. We have people like yourself. We have, we have, um, you know, we have, we know that the National Security Agency told the president uh, about this in December. Uh, I didn't start paying attention until January uh, to what was happening, reading news accounts. And then I started doing research on this topic, a, a paper that was published in April using phone data to track the movement of people in China till January 24th, I did this. And uh, I started this work and we submitted that paper in the middle of February. It was, it was published in April. But um, January 24th, the Chinese government um, basically put 930 million people 
under home confinement. They basically, the Chinese decided that this germ was such a serious adversary that they basically detonated a social nuclear weapon to stop it. And that got my attention. So, so then by February, I was convinced this was going to be a, rest, a serious respiratory pandemic. And every epidemiologist I was speaking to, like Mark Lipschitz, for example, at Harvard, he was going to, I mean, everyone in the know knew what was going on. So the president knew. The president was briefed even before the rest of us, as he should have been. He's the president by the NSA, I'm sure by other expert epidemiologists. And yet no action was taken. Why, when the Chinese locked down their country, we weren't beginning to produce PPE and ventilators or tests. Why we weren't. The Chinese published the, DNA, the RNA sequence of the virus, I think January 21st. And uh, you know, uh, Moderna started working on its RNA vaccine within weeks after that. At the same time, we could have been using that information to develop tests and get our testing capacity up and preparing the public for the crisis that was to come. None of that was done. And it's, it's, it's just, even though other wealthy democracies also dropped the ball, like Italy and, um, and the United Kingdom, we're the United States, you know, I have, and this is my country, you know, I have better, I have higher aspirations for us that we should be able to do a better job of this. And you can, I mean, as I said earlier, Tony was, Fauci was publishing papers about this and other experts, you know, for decades, you can, the CDC releases every three to five years, a, a, you know, a, a, a national strategy for coping with respiratory pandemics. Bill Gates has a TED talk that has, you know, 30 million views or something that he released 10 years ago about his concern about respiratory pandemics. People knew, and our leaders were brief. The United States senators, instead of, were selling their stock and reassuring the public instead of actually organizing the national defense against this virus, we now know. They were briefed, I think, in February. So, so really, we have done abysmally badly, honestly, in dealing with this. Now, some countries you mentioned, New Zealand, Korea, Taiwan, Greece, I'm very proud to say. I spoke to the Greek prime minister early on in the epidemic. Uh, you know, the little ethnic connection was strong. Um, you know, uh, have done well. Um, now, New Zealand is a very special case because it's a rich island uh, and it can implement border controls in a way that is, is very difficult for other countries. But Korea is not a rich island and, and uh, Greece is not a rich island and, and they were able to do stuff. So what, what can we learn from that? Should I go on? Should I tell you? Just yeah. two, uh, one more thought. I know I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm meandering and being long No, no, this is but, great. This yeah. is great. So there's an idea that's very important. That's an old idea that was advanced by James Reason. Um, He's a psychologist, I think, 30 or 40 years ago to understand the failure of complex systems. He was interested in things like nuclear power or, um, or medical error. You know, why, why does medical error occur? It's not like a clumsy, stupid doctor administers the wrong drug. There's a sequence of things that happens that winds up with a mistake being made. And the model that Reason proposed was a so-called Swiss cheese model. So let's think about the Swiss cheese model of coronavirus. Imagine that each of the things we could do, like wearing masks or testing and tracing or closing our schools or, um, or uh, closing our borders or shutting businesses, or having hand washing, uh, uh, and so on. Each of those is a layer of Swiss cheese. And each layer has some defects, has some holes in it. And the holes are randomly in the pieces of cheese. When you stack up these pieces of cheese, when you use multiple defenses, after the third or fourth layer, there's no hole lined up that the virus can get all the way through. But it doesn't matter which three or four slices of cheese you pick, so long as you pick some. One is not enough. As we saw with the super spreader event in the White House, they were doing testing, but that's all they were doing. They weren't doing physical distancing. They weren't doing masking. The testing wasn't enough. There were holes in that layer. The virus got through, and we had a super an embarrassing super spreader event in the White House. So you need to do multiple things. And what's interesting is that different countries have done different combinations of things, but that's all that's needed. You know, so, so, so New Zealand does border closures and testing and quarantine. Uh, Korea does masks and testing and tracing. Greece does school closures and lockdowns and masks. So each country does a different set of things and is able to stop the spread of the virus. And we, unfortunately, have had no good national strategy. We haven't done enough of the things that we needed to do. And furthermore, because we're a large nation and a, and a democratic and a free nation, so people move around, you know, we can't, we have other 
strengths as a culture, but weaknesses. You know, we're not a very authoritarian country that there's no way we could do what the Chinese did, you know, force everyone at, at home for, you know. But we basically didn't have a coordinated strategy. And it's a little bit like saying, like having a swimming pool and designating one part of the pool as a place where the kids can pee. It, it doesn't make any sense. You know, I mean, it just, it's going gonna, gonna to come over here, you know, so we, you know, we needed to do better. And, and anyway, so I, there's a lot I could say, but I, I'm, I'm ashamed at our inadequate response. Yeah, no, and, and I, and I share your frustration. I think um, we had, as you mentioned, so many of the amazing resources that any other country would hope for financial resources, scientific knowledge and prowess, extraordinary experts, institutions that have been battle-tested at the CDC. And, um, but I think you know, one of the analogies I was uh, sharing with some of the other day, it's like, if you've got the best, you know, latest Lamborghini on the market with the best engine, the best seats and state-of-the-art tires, but you don't have a good driver, you're going to crash. Yeah. And all of these assets require leadership and coordination. And I think we've, we've had some challenges on that front. Um, you know, what this brings up, though, is a question of the costs. And like, what are we paying as a result of this? Not just in terms of dollars, but in terms of, you know, human consequences. And a lot of the attention, if you, if you look at the news, as you know, is, um, is on the mortality, right? It's uh, as, it, yeah. as it should be. You know, we, we are losing so many people to this virus. But we also know that there are so many other consequences, right, to physical health, um, but also consequences to mental health. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about some of those prices that we're paying right now, in addition to the loss of life, like what are some of the other physical challenges that people are struggling with as a result of COVID-19 that are lingering? And what are the mental health impacts of this virus? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two levels we can answer that. My, uh, Larry Summers, a former Treasury Secretary and former colleague of mine from when I was at Harvard, and David Cutler, another health economist at Harvard, another former colleague, they had a paper a month ago in JAMA calling this the $16 trillion virus, mm-hmm. $8 trillion dollars of damage to our economy from the economic effects, the shutdowns, the, the recession, and so on, and $8 trillion due to the health effects. Some of that $8 trillion is due to death, but a lot of it is due to disability. So the virus, we don't know yet how bad, and we, we can't know. We'll have to wait to see. But it's very likely that, let's say, 5% of the people who become seriously ill and don't die will have some long-term disability. They'll have pulmonary fibrosis. They'll have renal insufficiency. They'll have cardiac or even neurological deficits, you know, corona fog that people are talking about and so on. And, and we know that happened with the previous, the, the SARS 2003 virus. We know it happens with other viruses. We know from studies of the 1918 virus, uh, the, which is an influenza, a, very, a different virus. So there's going to be some direct clinical effects, including mental effects. But what you're talking about is the indirect effects, which is the mental health effects of our response to the virus, of the impoverishment. You know, worldwide, I think 100 million people have fallen into abject poverty now because of the epidemic. In the United States, I don't think as many, of course, not as many people have fallen into abject poverty. But you know, we have, as we said, 30 million or more Americans out of work. There is the uh, there is the economic uh, downsliding. There is the loss of social interactions for all of our children and ourselves. Even the sense of isolation that you wrote about in your book together. You know, uh, you know the loneliness epidemic and the health adverse mental health consequences. These are, to my knowledge, still unquantified, but they are going to be very substantial. I mean, many American children are going to have this be an adverse childhood event, and listeners may not know, but it's. Even in our great, rich, wonderful nation, millions of children suffer really significant adverse childhood events, so-called ACEs, every year. Divorce of parents, uh, uh, you know, being homeless, uh, seeing violence, and so on. And now we have to add coronavirus to this as another exposure for all these kids. And this is likely to have lingering effects. So so our society is going to be marked by this, uh, this event, you know, as much as... I don't want to say as much as we were marked by a, the Vietnam War or something like that, but it's a, not a trivial event in the history of our nation that is happening right now. And I think we just have to get our hands ar- around that. Absolutely. And, and I think what is so st- uh, striking and difficult for uh, so many of us is the uncertainty associated with this virus, not knowing when there's going to be a resurgence, not knowing when our schools are going to be able to open, uh, when it's going to be safe to go and see friends and loved ones again. That's 
That's challenging. You know, I, I grew up in 1992 in Miami during Hurricane Andrew, and as devastating as that was to the community, we knew when it was over, and we knew that we had to rebuild. But uh, if this is indeed a, a pandemic storm that we're in, it's not clear uh, when it's, uh, it's going to pass. I think that's very taxing on people from a mental health perspective. Um, you, you know, I think in the midst of all this, Nicholas, the other thing that has been really challenging uh, is that in the midst of all this fear and misinformation and confusion has also been, I think, uh, the collateral damage in terms of public trust. You know, I think yeah. people have, uh, in many cases, um, become unsure of who to trust. Uh, they've lost faith in some longstanding authorities. Um, they've questioned who they should really believe. And as, as you know all, all too well, um, when we respond to a pandemic, one of the most important assets we have is public trust. And as we think about the prospect of having a vaccine, uh, I worry about, for example, the Kaiser Family Foundation's recent uh, statistics from September showing that nearly 50% of people said that if a vaccine was available today, they wouldn't take it. Yes. Uh, and this is because of trust issues. It's not because these are people who are have longstanding views against vaccines. This is much of this. The bulk of this is recent. It's about trust. So how should we think about rebuilding public trust during a pandemic response like this? Well, that's exactly right. We were talking about earlier public health communication. That's one of the pillars of dealing with epidemics. It's not just about wearing masks or physical distancing or closing schools or whatever. It's about having really good public health communication where leaders get up and say, here's what I think is happening. Here's why I think it's happening. And here's my level of uncertainty. And I'm sharing it with you because you're adult citizens of this country. And then, you know, if the story changes, here's why I'm now telling you something different. Here's what is the new evidence that's making me change my mind. I'm sorry I said this before. That's why I said it then. This is why I'm saying it now. You build credibility and trust in this, in this way. And you, or you could say, you know, when I previously told you that, I told you I wasn't certain of it. And in fact, the story has changed. Or when I previously told you that, I told you I was certain. And it's still true, like I said. And so, you know, this is very important because we're going to need to, when someone gets up and says, uh, this vaccine is safe, and here's the reasons we believe it's safe. Here's the studies. Or here's the extent to which we can be certain it's safe or effective or both. The public is going to have to believe this person uh, or these people or this institution. And, you know, I, like you, am very worried about this. Um, you know, it, it, and, and furthermore, given the media environment we have, I think, as you know, Vaccines, American vaccines are extraordinarily safe. So the typical mortality associated with vaccines is less than one in a million vaccinated people die as a result of the vaccine or one in 10 million for some vaccines. So, and, and each vaccine saves thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of lives. So from a public health point of view, it's a no brainer to vaccinate people. But this vaccine is being developed. These vaccines that we are doing for coronavirus, many are being developed by novel means, which we've never used before. Very rapidly, we're skipping some steps. And it's possible the vaccine not only will be, let's say, less effective as a result, but it's possible it'll be less safe. And usually with vaccine trials, no matter how large, you have 30,000 people in some of the current trials, if the rate of serious adverse consequences is one in 100,000, we might not even detect it with a trial even of 30,000 people. And so you rely on post, uh, uh, post-approval surveillance, as you know, so what happens if we do that as we should, so-called phase four studies after the phase three studies, and we find that the vaccine is not so, is, is causing complications. This will be breathlessly reported by the media and it will attenuate interest in the vaccine precisely when we need it most. So some way, and this is again, goes back to the point I was making earlier about maturity. There is no life without risk in a time of a serious epidemic. And the American public is, needs to understand that we are being asked to sacrifice and be mature. And there's no free lunch. There, there's no way we can't escape. There's no panacea that's going to give us a perfectly safe, perfectly effective vaccine that everyone is going to get. And then this thing will be over. That's exceedingly unlikely to happen. So if the vaccine comes out and it has not the ideal safety profile, people are going to have to make a hard decision about what to do. And the nation is going to have to wrestle with this. And, and either extremist is stupid. Either say, oh, we're, none of us are going to get the vaccine or, oh, we're going to ignore the problems. That's not the right approach. So, so I think this is another example of how public health communication to galvanize public will 
and prepare people for the reality of what we're facing. Why all of that's so important. Mm, couldn't agree more. I know we're getting close to the time where we're going to be switching to, um, uh, to the Q&A. And we've got some great questions that are coming in through the chat. But, but if I can, I want Thankfully, to ask I you. I can't talk and monitor questions at the same time. So I'm so glad someone else is monitoring the questions. And, uh, but if, you know, if people were raising their hands, you know, in a real live audience, you could handle it. But this is, I'm, thank you, whoever's monitoring the questions. Thank you. No, everyone at the Commonwealth Club team is doing a great job in helping us out here. Um, but the last question I, you know, I, I want to ask you before we transition is, um, I actually want to read a quote from the end of your book, which I, I found to be um, just particularly moving and, and beautifully written. But you said microbes have shaped our evolutionary trajectory since the origin of our species. We have outlived them before using the biological and social tools at our disposal. Life will return to normal. Plagues always end. And like plagues, hope is an enduring part of the human condition. First, that was just so beautifully written and, uh, and it just sort of gave me chills when I read it. At this moment where so many people are looking for hope, uh, Nicholas, unsure of what the future holds with the, uh, COVID, can you tell us a little bit about where you find hope as you look ahead? And, and what yeah. would you tell people who wonder if better days do, in fact, uh, lie ahead of us? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think plagues always end. We will see the other side of this. And as we spoke about earlier, we're lucky this germ isn't deadlier. It's a bad germ, but it could have been much worse. And, and, the, and the way I, you know, I'm very optimistic. I love our species. I just think we're an amazing animal. And I'm very optimistic about human beings. And um, I have written a lot about the evolutionary origins of a good society and about, about how we were shaped. We, we are endowed with these capacities for love and friendship and cooperation and teaching. We teach each other things, which is really weird. Other animals don't teach each other things. Many listeners may take this for granted, but it's really odd that we do that. We do that, and certain other animals do that. Elephants, for example, teach each other things. Hmm. But um, So we have these wonderful qualities, but what's really weird about it is that the, that the virus exploits those qualities. In other words, one of the arguments I've made is that the spread of germs is the price we pay for the spread of ideas. Hmm. I come near you in order to learn from you and to work with you. But as a result, I put myself at risk of exposure to a contagious pathogen. But the flip side is also true. The spread of ideas is what's going to allow us to combat the virus. It is precisely because we can work together. It is precisely because we can share information as a species about what is and isn't effective, uh, precisely because we have science that is a cultural product and relies on our capacity for teaching and learning, that we are, in fact, going to be able to ultimately prevail over this virus. But between now and then, unfortunately, we still have a, a long road to go, uh, in my view. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Nicholas. And, and we've got to, I want to make sure I turn to these questions to do this wonderful list of uh, inquiries justice. Uh, I, I want to start with, um, with one question that's come up here about the, um, about the impact. So the question is as follows. Does the current pandemic have any influence on the timing and likelihood of the next pandemic? Not so far as we know. So hmm. this very stochastic phenomenon, um, Tony Fauci had a paper he published in a classic paper about 20 or 30 years ago, where he looked at 300 years of influenza pandemics and the inter-pandemic interval is 10 to 20 years on average, but sometimes hmm. we go quite a number of years. Um, there's no reason to imagine that that is changing and we only get a serious pandemic like the one we're having every 50 to 100 years. On the other hand, we could get another one in 10 years. I mean, there's no reason to think that it will take another 50 or 100 years to come. It's, it's a bit chancy. And I think we should learn our lesson. I mean, I, I really hope we learn our lesson and that we are better prepared for the next one. There is, as some listeners may know, there's ongoing um, viral surveillance around the world, including in China. And there is a brewing uh, influenza pathogen right now that could be serious. The paper was just published in PNAS uh, a couple of months ago about this. Um, so, you know, we could have an influenza, a serious influenza outbreak in the coming years. But anyway, so I can't answer that question. There's, uh, but I will say one other thing, though, related to that, which is that with climate change and with growing um, contact between wild animals and people, 
uh, given the migration that climate change is uh, causing humans to go into terrain previously occupied by wild animals or causing wild animals to flee their terrain and come into contact with us. For example, even the bat that gave this coronavirus to us may have been a result of greater contact between humans and wild animals. We are seeing a rise in so-called uh, uh, zoonoses, zoonotic infections, infections that come from animals into humans. And I think there was a study in Nature a couple of years ago that I think documented 400 zoonotic illnesses, new germs that came from animals to humans in the last 10 or 20 or 30 years or so. So we are seeing more of those, partly because of a rising human population and greater encroachment like we just discussed, but they aren't yet becoming pandemics, right? You get Ebola outbreaks in Africa, for example, uh, you know, that are bad, but they don't cause this kind of worldwide uh, problems. So maybe, maybe there's going to be a slightly increased risk of worldwide pandemics, but so far, I don't think so. Thank you. And our next question uh, is actually about uh, herd immunity. You mentioned earlier, Nicholas, that we need to get to about 40 percent, uh, 40, 45 percent. And the question here is, why 40 to 45 percent uh, instead of 70 percent? So the classic uh, computation of herd immunity is that you take the r naught of the pathogen uh, and you use the formula, which is, uh, uh, I think it's r naught minus 1 over the r naught. Uh, is the fraction of the people that need to be immune before you get to herd immunity. So for example, if the pathogen had an R naught of three, three minus one is two, two divided by three is 66%. So if the, if the virus is contagious at the 60, at the, uh, at the, um, at a, the reproductive, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the basic reproductive number, the R naught is three, that means 66% of the people need to be immune before you get herd immunity. Or measles, which we said earlier, has an R-naught of about 16 or 18. If you do 18 minus 1 divided by 18, you get like 95%. It's so contagious. That's why a larger fraction. But those, that formula makes a, an assumption known as the well-mixed assumption. It assumes that everyone has an equal chance of getting the pathogen and everyone is in contact with everyone else. But network science, which is what my lab studies, shows that that's not the case. Some people, for example, are much more popular than other people. And popular people are more likely to be exposed to the pathogen, including early in the course of the epidemic, and more likely, therefore, to become immune early in the course. And if immune, stop the flow of the pathogen through them. So immunizing popular people, whether by vaccination or natural immunity, blocks the the road for the pathogen to go through the population. So typically, epidemics end at a rate lower than the computation using the basic formula. For example, the 1957 pandemic, which I forgot it, the, that was an influenza germ, and I think it's r naught was 2 approximately. I think that's right. It was 2 or 1.8 or something like that. If you did the calculation, something like 40% of Americans had to be immune before you got to herd immunity, and yet the epidemic stopped when we reached 25% for the same reason, lower than the target, because the, the, the popular people were immunized early, and as a result, stopped the flow. Incidentally, this is also the reason early in the epidemic, we read about all these celebrities and, um, and, uh, and uh, politicians that got the pathogen, including uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of England, and the reason was not just that they were in the public eye. So when they got it, we heard about them. Or Tom Hanks, for example. Actually, he would be a great person for public credibility, you know, as a spokesperson hmm. for vaccination or anything else. I've not, never met the man, although I would welcome the chance to do so. But anyway, the, uh, the, uh, we read about all these people who got the germ, not just because they were celebrities, but because, in fact, they are more popular. Politicians are shaking hands all the time. Of course, they got the disease earlier on average than the rest of us. So anyway, so the structure of the population, the network structure, is the reason that the actual ultimate herd immunity is probably less than that predicted simply by the r naught. Mm, that's really helpful. That makes a lot of sense. You know, a couple other questions here uh, that are coming in. Um, one is, if the current administration has given up trying to control the spread of COVID infection, what is the risk that SARS-CoV-2 will mutate to be more contagious or more lethal? 
it, this is again a, a stochastic thing. It's generally speaking, pathogens over some period of time, not over a number of years, mutate to become less lethal uh, with time. And the reason is that from the point of view of the virus, it doesn't want to kill us. Uh, killing us is inefficient from the point of the virus. Mm -hmm. if, if, if I get infected and drop dead, then I don't spread the virus. So the, the variants of the virus that kill me fast die out. Whereas, whereas if you get a different variant of the virus that just makes you sick and you go around and you spread it to other people because you haven't dropped dead, that's the variant that spreads. So generally speaking, viruses tend to become more benign uh, with time. And, and uh, so I, it, it is possible that this virus will become worse. There's an interesting story um, uh, about 1918 and why the second wave of the 1918 pandemic was worse than the first wave has a little bit to do with the dynamics of who was moving uh, in 1918. We can talk about that if you want. Mm. But I don't think there's a lot of reason to expect that this virus will become deadlier. More contagious is a bit different. Um, we don't have any evidence of that yet, but I suppose that could happen. Mm. Actually, could you say a little bit more, uh, Nicholas, about the point you were raising about why the second wave in 1918 was, was worse than the first? So we don't know exactly, but there's a fantastic theory about this, which relates to the idea I just said, which is that, um, so in, it usually, what, like in a moment ago, what I said, if the virus makes you so sick that you can't move around and you take to your bed and die, that worse variant of the virus, it, you know, uh, it disappears because you're not spreading it. Whereas if you get mildly sick and move around, then the more benign versions of the virus proliferate in the population. In the First World War, when the soldiers got sick, the ones that weren't seriously sick were left on the front to fight. But the ones that were seriously sick were put into crowded railway cars and sent a long distance to, uh, to uh, camps that were trying to care for those patients. So we, by our intervention, reversed the natural pattern. We took the sickest people with the worst version of the virus and exposed them to many other people by transporting them to, in densely packed cars to densely packed locations. This is one theory about why the second wave was worse, uh, four times worse in the 1918 pandemic than the first wave. We don't know for sure, but it's an, it's a, it's an intriguing theory. That is fascinating. I had not heard that before. That's really interesting. Huh. Well, this next question is a more clinical question, and it's, um, do you think young people suffering from long-term COVID effects like fatigue and chest tightness will eventually recover? I'm not the ideal person to ask that question to because I stopped, mm -hmm. I was a hospice doctor, you know, my whole career until 10 years ago, but I stopped seeing patients 10 years ago. So I have not been taking care of patients with COVID in the hospital or in the clinic. So I'm not the right person to answer that question. And I don't know. I don't know if the answer is known to that. We, we, um, we do have some cohort studies of people, but I don't think we've had enough passage of time to know for sure. You know, no one has studied 1,000 20-year-olds with chest tightness followed for two years to say, you know, at the end of two years, only 2% still have their symptoms. So I don't know the answer, and I don't know if it's known. Yeah, and I think that's a tricky part about this, right, is that there are so many of these questions where we need time to answer yeah. them, to see how people do, to see what symptoms persist, what crops up later. Um, and that's one of the tricky parts about this. But you mentioned your work in hospice. And interestingly, there's a question that came up where one of the listeners wants to know, has your experience working with hospice patients informed or added to your perspective on this? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the most direct way, first of all, you can't be a practicing hospice physician as I was and not be uh, moved by or or. Or, or come to a position where you see our common humanity. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people I was at the bedside when they died, hundreds. And, and um, you know, death is, is, uh, is, a, is an extraordinarily human experience. And, um, and um, you can't be in contact with that and not, in my view, develop a tremendous appreciation for our frailty and our common humanity. Uh, so most hospice doctors I know and nurses have this type of sensibility about human beings. They sort of recognize we're all soft on the outside and we're vulnerable and, um, and are very moved by the desire to care for people. 
some of us burn out, which is another topic. You know, it's like being a burn unit nurse or a, or a pediatric oncologist. You know, it's, these are difficult clinical uh, jobs. But more directly, my hospice experience was relevant because early in the pandemic, I was appalled that people were dying alone in our country. Uh, there were many, many cases where, for a variety of reasons, including the inundation of our hospitals and the lack of PPE, where the Americans who died died alone and their families were not allowed to be there. And as a hospice doctor, this was anathema. I mean, I was enraged by this as I was reading these accounts. It was unnecessary. If we had had more PPE and better preparation and or had flattened the curve more, we wouldn't have had these inundated hospitals and we would have been better able to provide for dignified deaths. The deaths we had for many thousands of Americans in 2020 in our country were just as lonely as the deaths of bubonic plague in the 14th century in, in Europe, which is nuts, right? I mean, you read about in plagues how the, how the people who are dying are abandoned, you know, like in the street in Europe. Uh, or even in the 19th century, for example, during the bubonic plague outbreak in Mumbai in India, people just died on the street. Or even today during cholera outbreaks in Bangladesh, for example, or smallpox outbreaks uh, in, in the United States, you know, in the, in, in the Americas, you know, in the, in the 16th century, you read these accounts of people just being abandoned by their loved ones, all bonds of fellowship abandoned, you know, like from Lord of the Rings. And, uh, and you would, I would never have imagined that this would happen in America in the 21st century. And yet there we were. This phenomenon, which has been a feature of plagues for thousands of years, just like lies, reared its head again inexorably in our society. And it, it was really depressing to me, honestly, as, as a hospice doctor. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with how tragic that was to hear those stories of people and, dying alone. And, and we should avoid it this time around. I mean, we should be better prepared right now so that families, that you know, we should have procedures in place so that if someone is dying of COVID, their family can be with them. It's possible to do that. We just need to prepare for it. Right. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the word burnout also, uh, you know, among uh, our medical colleagues in the medical profession, uh, Nicholas, and I, I think about how many of our colleagues uh, I spoke with, and I know that you spoke with as well over the last several months, who, who were part of those stories, who were holding up the iPads to patients who were dying so they could say goodbye to their families because they couldn't be with them in person. And the trauma of that for the caregivers as well, for the healthcare yes. workers, is extraordinary. I don't think we've even gotten to no. a point where we can ex- assess just how profound that impact is going to be, uh, because people are still, you know, in their, you know, their sort of a fight or flight surge, and they're they're working on an adre- adrenaline, and they're seeing another surge in so many hospitals around the country. But this will be a, one of those other hidden costs to uh, our country and to the world more broadly when we look at the stress placed on our healthcare workers. Yeah, and not just the stress, but the mortality. Uh, yeah. You know, so, you know, in, in the plague of Athens in 430 BC, Thucydides writes about how the doctors were dying. Hmm. Physicians, healthcare providers during the bubonic plague, uh, Pope Clement VI writes about how all the, uh, the, the holy sisters who were caring for the victims, how they were dying. Hmm. Uh, th- th- this also is a feature of plagues. But again, why in the 21st century in the United States? Why were we losing nurses and doctors to infection? because of a lack of PPE and a lack of preparation. I mean, here's the thing. You and I, are, I'm a little older than you, but I remember being a doctor when HIV was a, a, a serious condition in the 1990s in the United States. And we took risks in caring for those patients that blood would spatter when we drew their blood, might get into our, our lips or our eyes. We might have a needle stick injury. Uh, and it was expected of us. Like you, if, if you had a patient that had HIV and they needed to have blood drawn or needed a procedure, you had to do the procedure. You couldn't say, oh, no, you know, I don't want to take care of this patient. It's, it's your duty. It's, it's part of being a healthcare provider, a physician. You, you must and necessarily are expected to take some risk, but not without equipment, right? I mean, we expect you to take a risk, but with proper preparation and equipment. We don't send you into, into battle without any equipment. And then here we were in March of 2020 when, when nurses were making PPE out of office supplies, I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, I, I'm speaking to you in a very animated way right now, but I mean, it, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, like, really? I mean, this is where we're at? Why? Because our leaders were unwilling or unable to prepare adequately for this obvious calamity? 
it's not right or fair to expect healthcare workers to do this to do this when we can reduce their exposure and risk, when we can make hospitals, for example, by flattening the curve. The other thing is when hospitals, as you know, are inundated, mistakes happen. People are exhausted. They're tired. You, 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 you have a lapse in procedure or you can't help it. You're going from person to person. By, by flattening the curve, not only do we provide for PPE, but we give rest to the healthcare providers so that they can protect themselves. But furthermore, they can do a better job caring for us let me be very clear about this. Which would you rather do? Would you rather go to a hospital in March that's inundated if you have COVID? Or would you rather go nine months later when we know better how to care for you and your doctors and nurses aren't exhausted? It's better for you when we plan and enact better procedures. Absolutely. And I, I share your sense of uh, frustration and, um, and frankly, outrage over the lack of protection that we afforded to people on the front lines. You know, we would never think about sending a soldier into battle yeah. without the armor they needed to protect themselves. Yet we were asking our healthcare workers to do that each and every day. And in parts of the country where st- they still are um, because we are still short of PPE in many, many hospital systems. You know, unfortunately we've come to the point in our program, we have time for one last question. Um, it's an appropriate question to, to end on. We, we talked uh, uh, earlier on Nicholas about the, the human consequences of this in terms of our relationships and our social connection with others. You, uh, you spoke to that. Um, yet one of the challenges I think that many people are finding is that interacting with some of the people they normally would interact with can be challenging uh, in this time of COVID when we become so polarized and when even the idea of wearing a mask is a pol- seen as a political symbol instead of a public health measure. And so the question here is, um, how would you suggest that we have a conversation with friends and family who do not view COVID as a legitimate issue? Oh my goodness, that's an impossible question. Could I have a different one? <laughs> Could I have a, a different question? How about, how about the molecular biology of the uh, spike protein of the coronavirus? Uh, my God, I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, you know, I... Um, I think you can, you know, you can't reason a person out of a position they haven't been reasoned into. Hmm. And so the appeal to reason, unfortunately, often doesn't work. I think one of, there's some basic tools when you're, is you can join people. You can start by looking for points of agreement. So if you're having a disagreement with someone, you can say, well, let's see what we do agree about, you know, um, you know, and you can look for something you agree on and, and, and start with that foundation. Okay, we both agree that this is something we should do or this is the truth. And then maybe slowly expand. And it's also not a one-off thing. You know, it's a sequence of interactions. I don't have an answer to that question. I wish I did. I have a few people in my social circle I've been working on, uh, one man in particular who's very smart, uh, that I, uh, you know, that actually sees the science the same way, but basically makes a different calculus about whether it's worth stopping the toll of mortality. He's basically saying the poverty is going to kill more people than the germ is. Let's just take the hit is basically what he's saying. And, um, you know, I don't agree with that, but at least we can start from the same factual base and we're just having a policy or ideological difference, not a dispute about does the virus exist? Is it deadly? You know, like like what drugs treat it? You know, the hydroxychloroquine does not work. You know, we know that, you know, uh, et cetera. So um, that's, that's an easier conversation in some ways. Same factual base, different ideologies, totally different than we can't even agree on the facts. Yeah, well, I think this is a, these conversations are really tough. And I think as we especially get into November and get closer to Thanksgiving, um, I have no doubt that there'll be more family gatherings, some virtual, some in person, where conversations like this will come up. And, and they're not easy, like, like you said. Um, and I love the way you put it, that you can't reason people out of positions they haven't been reasoned into. Um, I think, though, that, as you said, I think very, um, uh, very accurately, that our willingness to listen to people, our willingness to seek common ground, um, does go a long way in ways that we may not always see the immediate effect of, but uh, can really make a difference on people. Um, you know, I think, I wish we had so much time. I, I have so many questions that I would love to ask you. And I can't think of a better time, Nicholas, for you to have written this book at a time when we're we're obviously still going through this pandemic, but so much has happened in the last seven months. And to have someone to help us put that in perspective, um, help us understand where we've been, 
where we are and where we're going is uh, is really invaluable. Um, you know, I just want to say in in closing to everyone who's listening. Um, you know, first I just want to. Uh, you know, to, on behalf of everyone who's listening, Nicholas, thank you uh, for writing this book, for spending this time with us, for, uh, and even before this, uh, frankly, for um, for doing the great work you've done in looking at the impact of social networks and thinking about health in the unusual and, and, and very important ways that you have. Um, and for all of those who are listening today, if you haven't done this already, uh, I want you to please pick up your copy of Apollo's Arrow at your local bookstore. And I also want you, on behalf of the club, uh, to recognize and and thank Ken and Jackie Broad, uh, their the family fund uh, for support, the generous support of this program. And if you want to watch more virtual programs, or if you want to support the Commonwealth Club, please do visit uh, www.commonwealthclub.org, uh, and you can make a donation there. So once again, I'm Dr. Vivek Murthy. Uh, so thrilled and honored to be here with Nicholas Christakis to celebrate the launch of his wonderful book, uh, Apollo's Arrows. And to all of you who are listening, my best wishes to you. Hope you all stay safe and well. and wish you all a very, very good night. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.